today, I'm going to mostly look at things through Saul's point of view. And then next week, we're going to look at things much more from David's. So let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father God, we thank you for the beauty and power of your word. And we just ask now that as we consider it, you will speak to us. Let your Holy Spirit brood over us, Lord. And may your word today be transformative for each one here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Back in the early 1970s, there was a Canadian a Bible teacher with a prophetic edge to his ministry called Ern Baxter. And he spoke uh, at that time about David and Saul representing, if you like, two expressions of Christianity. And what he said at that time had a huge impact, significant impact uh, in this country at that time. And he said that David reflected the new and vibrant and charismatic and spirit-filled churches that were just beginning to emerge in great numbers in those days. They were mostly meeting in living rooms and in small rented facilities. And by, by contrast, he said that Saul mirrored a much more institutional expression of church that Ern Baxter predicted would soon begin to see stagnation and decline before eventually fading from the scene altogether. And in much the same way that Saul's kingdom began to crumble as David emerged, he, we would see, he said, a changing of the guard towards the end of the 20th century and into the beginning of the 21st. And just as Saul was a head and shoulders guy, head and shoulders above anybody else, the kind of church life that his life epitomized was all about the head, first of all, cerebral, intellectual, academic, governed by human wisdom. So, for example, the seminaries for training ministers at that time and still today would openly question aspects of God's word that the modern mind finds difficult to accept. Miracles, spiritual gifts, the presence of God in worship, the reality of the demonic, and even standard Christian doctrine and teaching like the virgin birth and the resurrection were disparaged in some of these theological colleges. And the kind of church that Saul embodied was not only about the head, it was also about the shoulders, representing, if you like, human strength, human ability. And so instead of emphasizing the David-like features of charismatic ministry, passionate worship, anointed leadership, some churches preferred to put their faith in expertise and democracy and to rely on things like management techniques and market research, all that kind of thing. So in sharp contrast to Saul, David was a man not of the head and the shoulders, but of the heart. The heart. He had a heart for God. God looked into David's heart and he saw a flame for the Lord. He saw a zeal for his honor, a passion for his name. And Ern Baxter's word was that we would see the old Saul-type Christianity begin to fade. 
And at the same time, David-type Christianity would rapidly become more prominent. Well, that was back in the 70s. And in the 50 years since Ern Baxter said those things, that is exactly what has happened. It's exactly what has happened. And about 20 years ago, Terry Virgo picked this up and spoke uh, on it at a New Frontiers conference called Together on a Mission. And what I hope to do this week and next, another generation on from uh, those men, is to give echo to their basic teaching here. I'm going to adapt it a bit. I'm going to add my own uh, thoughts in as well. So basically, anything good you hear over this week and next is basically down to Ern Baxter and Terry Virgo. Anything that sounds a bit off, that's probably all my own work, okay? Right, well, who is Saul? Uh, Very simply, he is the first king of Israel. And he is only mentioned one time in the whole New Testament, and tellingly, it is to say how he contrasts unfavorably with the man who succeeded him on the throne, David. So here's what it says about Saul in Acts chapter 13, verses 21 and 22. It says, Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years, After removing Saul, God made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. That's the one time he's mentioned. David, incidentally, is mentioned over 50 times in the New Testament. And the psalms that he wrote, not the psalms that other people wrote, his psalms are quoted over 30 times in addition in the New Testament. So clearly, Saul's legacy is barely a footnote in God's eternal purposes, whereas David left an enduring legacy, which of course leads all the way to Christ, his greatest son and descendant. Right, spoiler alert. Before we go into the stories of these two men, I'm going to summarize it in this way. Saul started relatively well, but finished very badly. David started very well and finished relatively badly. So both men showed promise at the start, and both ended their lives in disappointment, under a cloud. So the pattern is the same, starting well, finishing badly, but Saul is dismissed as one of the worst kings in Israel. And David is almost idealized as one of the best, if not the best. Certainly the yardstick by which all the others were measured. So why, when both men started well and finished badly, why was David God's man and Saul wasn't? That's what we're going to find out this week and next. Right, Saul's story starts in 1 Samuel chapter 8, which doesn't even mention him. But that's where it starts. Uh, the nation at that time is being led by a prophetic priestly type called Samuel, good man, man of God, anointed. But he's getting on a bit, Samuel. And there's no obvious candidate for him to pass the baton onto in his family. And so the people get together 
and they initiate that awkward conversation you sometimes need to have with someone who stayed in the job a little bit too long. And in verse 4, 1 Samuel 8, they tell him straight, they say, look, Samuel, you are old. You're old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king over us to lead us such as all the other nations have. In other words, Israel, the nation, sees the need for change, but they want the wrong kind of change, sadly. They say, we want to be indistinguishable from all the surrounding pagan nations. We're fed up with being different. We've had enough of being God's chosen people. Maybe God can choose somebody else for a change. We want to blend in. You know, the first time I sailed a boat on my own, I was about eight years old. I should add in my defense that my dad gave me absolutely no instruction about this whatsoever. He just assumed I'd get it. I capsized this boat within about a minute. Uh, thankfully, relatively shallow water. I had a life jacket. I survived, obviously. But I quickly learned that boats, generally speaking, are great so long as the water is outside. But if a lot of water gets on the inside, boats are basically useless. And always beware when a church wants to look just like the world and adopt its standards and adopt its morals and worldview. You've got to keep the seawater out of the boat. We've been talking this year, at the beginning of the year, about our foundational values here at King's. They are non-negotiable. God's word, the presence of God in worship, the power of the Holy Spirit, discipleship, evangelism, prayer. These are not the sort of things you find celebrated in secular society. We are called to be different. Don't let the world's values get inside you and take you down, like my boat as an eight-year-old boy. But Israel says, no, we want plenty of seawater inside the boat. We want to be like the godless, pagan, idolatrous nations around us. We don't care if it means national service and higher taxes, whatever. Just give us a king. That's what they say. Three times they say it in 1 Samuel 8. And in the end, Samuel reluctantly gives them what they want. So Saul is on a flawed foundation from the start. He's man's choice. He's the people's choice. Democratically elected on the basis of his looks. Tall, dark, and handsome. He was never God's choice. And in chapters 9 to 12 of 1 Samuel, considering what I've just said, you'd be surprised to see that Saul actually starts pretty well. As we've seen, he's tall and good-looking. But that's not all. In these chapters, 9, 10, 11, 12, he seems to have a servant heart. He dutifully helps his father by undertaking a fairly unexciting mission of looking for some lost donkeys. And he seems to do it in a very uncomplaining sort of way. It's quite promising. There's a suggestion as they're looking for these animals that they should inquire of the prophet Samuel to see if he has a word from God about where these donkeys have got to. And Saul says, yeah, good idea. Let's do that. 
So he's not above taking advice from junior servants. In fact, he's very willing to do so. And when Saul speaks to Samuel in chapter 9, verse 21, he seems to show real humility. He doesn't strut around on the stage like the great I am. He says this, well, I'm just a nobody, really, from an insignificant family of a minor clan of the smallest tribe. That's who I am. And Samuel anoints him to be king then and there. And even after that anointing, just as Samuel is about to make it public, nobody knows where he is. It's all gone. They eventually find him hiding amongst the supplies. So Saul is obviously reserved, he's self-effacing, seems very modest. These are good qualities, aren't they? Well, at the end of chapter 10, a bunch of nobodies, sorry, a bunch of troublemakers uh, despise him and criticize him. And Saul doesn't fly off the handle. He just rises above and ignores it. He seems to be magnanimous and secure in who he is. In chapter 11, he saves a city that is besieged by an enemy. And it says this, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him. And he rallies his troops and he wins a great victory. And people say to him, let's put to death all these people who challenged your authority and rubbished your leadership. And Saul says, no, no, no. No, this is a day of celebration. This is a day where God has delivered us. No one should die today. It's a flying start. There's no question about it. Saul makes a great start. He shows a lot of grace. On the surface, he appears to be a brilliant choice. But tragically, it doesn't last. So how was his track record after a few years after he's faced bigger problems, after he's faced greater challenges and pressure. That, it turns out, is a different story. So with Saul, because as we've seen, the foundations are faulty, once the pressure comes and starts to build, the cracks begin to show, and his entire kingdom, his entire reign begins to crumble. See, Saul comes across as impressive on the surface, but underneath. It's a different story. In chapter 13, there's a conflict with the Philistines. Remember the Philistines, Goliath? It's an enemy with a fierce reputation and daunting capability. And they strike terror in the Israelite camp. It says that they were quaking with fear literally shaking with fear of the Philistines. Their enemy army is numerous and advanced, and it looks like a bigger problem than any king can handle. This is a test of Saul's faith. It's a test of his leadership. Is he going to trust in God? Is he going to inspire his men like David did against Goliath? He cannot win this battle man's way. It has to be God's way. And so Saul is told that he can engage the Philistines in battle, but he must, first of all, wait for Samuel, the man of God. But Samuel doesn't arrive until the very last minute. And in the meantime, 
Saul panics. He caves into the pressure. See, Saul doesn't really have, deep down, a faith in God. So he goes for a ritual instead. He's just thinking, oh, I've got, to, I've got to do this sacrifice. That'll do. He thinks, I can't wait. I can't trust anymore. I'll just do this religious thing and hope for the best. But he doesn't understand how things work spiritually. He takes these priestly duties upon himself. It's outside of his sphere of anointing and authority. He panics and he messes it up. And here's the crucial thing. God is not in it. And Saul doesn't even notice. So finally Samuel turns up. He says, what are you doing? And Saul says, well, the men were getting nervous and some of them were starting to leave and you were a bit late and I was worried about the Philistines and I just felt I should do something really. See, Saul is led by the crowd. He's not led by God, he's led by the crowd and he crumbles under pressure. Remember David last week against Goliath? He said, the Lord has delivered me from the paw of the bear and the lion. This Philistine should be like one of them. Because he's defied the armies of the living God. With Saul, there's no trace of that. There's no trace of, the Lord has led me to do this. The Lord has told me. God said. He says, the people told me. The people were leaving. And he's found out in this moment. Samuel catches him with his trousers down. And it's obvious here. He's got no real relationship with God at all. In chapter 15, Saul is given a command to go and utterly destroy an enemy. And that's troubling. That's problematic to read. And it raises questions that we don't have time to go into this morning. It is disturbing. All I'll say for now is this, that what is often literal and physical in the Old Testament turns out very often to be spiritual and figurative in the new. So, for example, in the New Testament, it says, our battle, our warfare is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. They're not our enemies. Our warfare is against principalities and powers and forces of evil. So we, as Christians, have no mandate from the Old Testament to wage war or to inflict violence on anyone, however badly they've wronged us. The only putting to death and showing no mercy in the New Testament for us Christians is of our own sinful desires and impulses. We put them to death, the works of the flesh. But for Saul, this is a real war against a guerrilla terrorist enemy who lives by attacking other nations and carrying off their wealth and families. And this is going to be an expression of God's judgment and to ensure that absolutely none of their idolatry could take hold in Israel. He's told to leave no survivors. But Saul is not willing to obey fully. God gives him a clear command, but because, again, of the mood of the people, because that's for something else, Saul caves in to them. He's a product of the people. New Testament makes it very clear that God has entrusted us with the gospel. That's his command. And he's, in, he's called us to guard it, 
and defend it from attack. We have no more right to alter the content of the gospel than a postman has to tamper with and open our mail. See, God gives Saul a command, and he just does his own thing. And he's actually so pleased with a partial victory that God has explicitly commanded him not to do. He's left survivors that in verse 12 of chapter 15, he goes off to build a monument to himself. I mean, this guy is... He's more concerned about his image and reputation than he is about obeying God's word. That's the bottom line. And finally, Samuel catches up with him. And Saul says, ah, Samuel, great. I feel like seeing a prophet today. The Lord bless you, he says. See, he knows all the liturgy. He knows the right words to say. He can trot it off without thinking. He said, I carried off the Lord's, I carried out the Lord's instructions. No, he didn't. And Samuel knows it. No, he didn't, he said. And instead of repenting in this episode, Saul just makes excuses. Samuel confronts him with his disobedience. He says, oh, yeah, I've sinned, but, but well, the people said. You know how it is. I did obey, sort of. Sorry, not sorry, that's Saul. Once again, I went with the flow. I feared the people. I've got to keep everybody happy. Saul is a people pleaser, not a God pleaser. He's a blueprint for Christian leaders who feel they need to appease the congregation and tell it whatever it wants to hear. By contrast, Paul says in Galatians 1, if I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. It's that clear. And even Jesus' enemies came to him in Mark 12 and said, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Even his opponents, even those who hated him, had to acknowledge that he didn't please people and tell them what they want to hear. There's no trace in sort of that. There's no trace of any real repentance or of taking responsibility for what he did or what he failed to do before God. The disgraced uh, televangelist Jim Baker wrote an autobiography from prison. That's how disgraced he was. He was in prison. And the biography was called, autobiography was called, I Was Wrong. And it was a publishing disaster because it ran to 600 pages, which is simply not marketable. Nobody wants to buy a book that long. No one's got the time or inclination to read it. So when people asked him, why did you write this book, I Was Wrong? Why, why did you write it so long? He said, I was that wrong. That's how wrong I was. That's repentance. Saul, by contrast, head and shoulders, not the heart, doesn't know how to repent. Look, yeah, I sinned, he mumbles. Verse 30. All right, fair enough, but please honor me now, he says. He says to Samuel, let me walk with you so people can see me with you. The great prophet Samuel. It's pathetic. What will other people think of me? How will this affect my ratings? That's all he's really bothered about, Saul. Samuel has just told him, your kingdom will not endure. 
but he doesn't take it seriously. He doesn't take it to heart. He thinks he can just wing it and get away with it. In stark contrast to David, as we will see next week, Saul started off on faulty foundations, and in spite of some initial surface success, his devotion to God was never from the heart, and his repentance was never real. We're going to see how Saul becomes frightened of the authentic new thing that God was bringing through. He becomes paranoid that David's success will eclipse his own. And he ends up opposing and even persecuting the new work of God. So what, if anything, as I draw to a close, do you see of Saul in yourself? Are you, unlike Saul, on a good foundation this morning? Are you aware that God, in his grace, before you were even interested in him, before you had done anything good or bad, chose you to be his son or daughter? That is foundational. Do you feel deep down that you're more impressive on the surface than you know you are underneath? How does your faith stand up when it comes under strain in times of testing? Do you think you're more concerned about what people think of you than about what God thinks of you? Are you able to turn to God in repentance when, as we all do, you get things wrong? Or do you find yourself making excuses and justifying yourself like Saul did? Wonderful thing is, God is so ready to cleanse you and make you new. But with all his background, his natural ability, his opportunities and position, Saul could have been a great king like David eventually was. Don't settle for Saul in your life. Aim for David, the one with a heart for God, and who looked back at all the blessing in his life towards the end of his life and said, who am I? Sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? God has a hope and a future for you. Seize it today by faith. Amen.